listening to Works Cited, a podcast about poems. I'm Kevin Cotrera, calling in from Boston, Massachusetts. And with me from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, is Luke Bauerlein. Hi, Luke. Hey, Kevin. Happy to be here. Awesome. And uh, also joining us is Luke Stromberg from Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. How you doing, Luke? Good, good. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, we're going to be talking today about the poem Advice to a Prophet by Richard Wilbur. And uh, I'll be reading the poem to get us started. Advice to a Prophet. When you come, as you soon must, to the streets of our city, mad-eyed from stating the obvious, not proclaiming our fall, but begging us in God's name to have self-pity, spare us all word of the weapons, their force and range, the long numbers that rocket the mind. Our slow, unreckoning hearts will be left behind, unable to fear what is too strange. Nor shall you scare us with talk of the death of the race. How should we dream of this place without us, the sun mere fire, the leaves untroubled about us, a stone look on the stone's face? Speak of the world's own change. Though we cannot conceive of an undreamt thing, we know to our cost how the dreamt cloud crumbles. The vines are blackened by frost, how the view alters. We could believe, if you told us so, that the white-tailed deer will slip into perfect shade, grown perfectly shy. The lark avoid the reaches of our eye, the jackpine lose its knuckled grip on the cold ledge, and every torrent burn, as Xanthus once, its gliding trout stunned in a twinkling. What should we be without the dolphin's ark, the dove's return, these things in which we have seen ourselves and spoken? Ask us, prophet, how we shall call our natures forth when that live tongue is all dispelled, that glass obscured or broken, in which we have said the rose of our love and the clean horse of our courage, in which beheld the singing locust of the soul unshelled, and all we mean or wish to mean. Ask us, ask us whether with the worldless rose our hearts shall fail us. Come demanding whether there shall be lofty or long-standing when the bronze annals of the oak tree close. Yeah, wow. Uh, so, uh, who, wants to, who wants to start the discussion uh, tonight about this poem? Uh, one of the first things that we should maybe get out of the way and, um, is the way that this poem would have been received by its initial audience, right? right. So it was published in um, From Advice to a Prophet and Other Poems, uh, uh, Wilbur's collection of poems that he published in 1961. I mean, and, and it still reads this way to us today, but I think especially then, you can't help but think when when you read this poem about the possibility of, uh, of a nuclear war, um, you know, uh, and, and the looming threat of atomic weapons. And, and, and that really comes through, I, I, I think. I mean, what do you think? Well, and I'll just I'll just say this, and maybe this is this is a little bit cheating, but I mean I've heard him say in interviews yeah. that it took him a long time to specifically come up with what a, a poetic response to the threat of nuclear annihilation 
And uh, it's something that had bothered him for a while, and this is finally his, his answer to that. Mm-hmm. So it is very specifically for that purpose, absolutely, and only a few years away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, it sounds like, at the best date yeah. of publication. Yeah, well, the date of publication for the, the book, when, where, when the poem was where the poem was published is 1961. Now, I don't know where... Oh, yeah, right, the that. year, right, right. We don't know yeah. what month, but yeah, that would have been... Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah well, we obviously wrote it earlier. Yeah, and, and uh, well, it, it brings to mind uh, just sort of the idea of what a prophet's job is, you know. Um, I mean, it, it really is, you know, if you put it, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, then it's incredibly prescient, you know. Um, although it's not, you know, he's, he's giving advice to a prophet. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about the rhetorical uh, stuff that's going on in this poem, you know, he's being a prophet by proxy, you know, uh, he's, he's, uh, slyly, you know, giving yeah. his prophecy as by saying, well, I'm not a prophet, but here's what I would tell a prophet who would come to our time. Yeah. Well, it's kind of addressed to a prophet yet as, as Bowerline mentioned, you know, he, he thought a lot about like, how do you address this threat of nuclear war yeah like how how could you um you know warn the public about it or or or, or how could you possibly respond to such a thing in, in, in poetry and it's like almost like okay he's writing this is advice to a prophet but it's almost like advice to himself you know so he's kind of serving as the speaker and the prophet in some ways you could see that yeah and and I see that um, as a move that is that is mirrored in, in a lot of the things, and, and really at the the core of the argument of the poem, which is which he seems to be saying that right the, the advice is that you can't deliver this stuff too directly to people because they simply won't understand it. Yeah. And he has kind of a complicated argument for why that is, but it seems to be making um, really an argument about how we make meaning, the mm-hmm. importance of metaphor, and and to Absolutely. me this whole sort of sidestep that he's doing where, you know, it's, he's giving advice to the prophet. So we focus on that again. It's like, it's like, he feels like there's just at a distance, right. Of, of art sometimes allows us to connect with a thing more than the reality itself, which, you know, of course, as an artist, it's, I think we all want to kind of believe in that argument and that there may in fact be a naivety to that, but there's also a a sort of hope in it, which is, is interesting to me in, in sort of a, a poem that's about facing world annihilation and, and the death of the race. Yeah, yeah. There's always a hope uh, when a prophet speaks that people will listen to what he says and um, repent, you know, and and uh, forestall that uh, that horrible uh, you know vision. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the Book of Jonah. Uh, I mean, Jonah is upset because uh, the prophecy, you know did not come to pass because the, the people actually listened to what he said. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, of course I, you know, I mean, Wilbur was, um, was a Christian and, um, you know, steeped in, in this stuff. So I'm, I mean, I can't help but think that the biblical prophets were, uh, were definitely uh, on his mind as he was writing this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, they, but there's, um, sh- sure, sure. I, I mean, I, I definitely, sure. There's the, the biblical, uh, prophets I, I think are alluded to, uh, but there's also um, like kind of uh, uh, as I see it, like an allusion to uh, like antiquity, like to yeah. like um, Tiresias or, or C- 
Cassandra. Oh, that's or, true. Yeah, uh, the yeah, prophets in, in, yeah. in, in, mm-hmm. in classical literature and Greek mythology. Yeah, and yeah, and in fact, there is that direct reference to the Iliad, you know, with uh, the river Xanthus. Yeah. yeah, right. Which is where the, the, the it was the river where um, the Greeks camped uh, during the Trojan War. Yeah. Right. So that's the uh, a specific reference to the uh, Trojan War there. Um, and and well, then then there's just always the possibility too that if we think of Cassandra, like of well, you mentioned Joan as a prophet that people actually listen to him, but yeah, uh, with with Cassandra, of this idea that you could speak the truth, and somehow you know people are not going to understand it or not going to listen to it, and it is it's coming back to what uh, Bowerline was saying earlier, it's a very interesting, like kind of a slippery thing here that he does. When instead of like writing a poem about, you know, like what could happen in the event of a nuclear war, he kind of does take this like step back, like, okay, that's kind of a huge thing to write about. Like, how could you not come across as, pretentious or whatever when when writing that i don't know it just seems very difficult to write about directly so he takes this kind of step back and it's like advice to a prophet it's sort of about like how to you know use rhetoric effectively in preventing in in getting people to care about um such a thing as a as a nuclear war right so it's it's a kind of interesting distancing that he's doing here yeah absolutely it's that um uh, it's that level of irony that I think um, that's where a lot of the technique in the poem comes from. You know, um, he, you know, he has, he's put this distance between uh, himself and, and the subject. And, you know, like you say, I mean, it's, it's really the only way he can come to write about it by kind of writing around it um, because it is such an immense subject. And I think that makes it more powerful because it, the the sort of the the idea of nuclear annihilation is is this negative space in the middle of the in the middle of the poem. Uh, I mean, does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, it, could you like in in what sense do you, do you mean like negative space? Well, in the in the sense of uh, you know, he says you know in the, in the second stanza begins, "Spare us all word of the weapons, their force yeah. and range." You know, he's saying he's using the uh, the via negativa kind of way of argument. Where he's, uh, right. mm. um, you know, he's saying, uh, "Oh, don't tell us about this." And of course, when he's when he mentions it, that actually imagine uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, everyone imagines it. Like you know, and, and the, the one of my favorite lines in the poem is the long numbers that rocket the mind. Um, yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. Just, yeah, mm. what that verb just does so much in that poem, you know, and um, it's a it sl- evokes yeah. the weapons. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and right. I really do, th- I think that it, it's, it rockets the mind. I mean, that's a perfect uh, description for, um, you know, kind of how baffling the whole concept is. Uh, so, so in that way, that's, that's kind of what I mean by a negative space in the poem. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, there's this thing that's only, that's kind of indirectly talked about, you know, but it's really, you know, there's no direct image of, you know, a nuclear attack here. You know, he never mentions nuclear weapons he never mentions hiroshima or, or anything like that well i guess he he does mention that there are such weapons but he doesn't get into specific detail about what they are yeah right 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 most of this poem is interesting is that it's written in 1961 but i mean 
if you if you put aside this idea that and until the 20th century there were no weapons that were capable of destruction on such a mass level right but beside for that brief mention of the weapons right very non-specific most of the references in this poem they're not like really contemporary right he doesn't mention anything about cities or you know uh, you know contemporary imagery of cities and the language itself it feels of another time in the, in the sense that yeah. um, it's so, the diction is so elevated, right? Right. It's, uh, yeah, and I, I think that if there's one, th like, I remember, you know, reading over this a few times today and thinking that, um, uh, rather cynically, that, you know, in today's world, you, you can't really, um, like when he says, speak of the world's own change, you know, if, if, and then later in another stanza, if you told us so, that the white-tailed deer will slip into perfect shade, grown perfectly shy, the lark avoid the reaches of our eye. The, all this natural imagery, um, I don't see that moving people. You, you know what I mean? I really don't. Because, uh, I mean, I... Um, well, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, right. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, how many people support, you know, the dismantling of the EPA, for example. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's just, the, it's not, um, you know, people have become so hard-hearted, uh, even about nature, <laughs> you know, much well, less their I, fellow well, man. You know yeah, I mean? no, I, it's, yeah. <laughs> that's I sort mean, of what I was calling a, a, a maybe an, a naivety it, to, to the poem in, in our own era. I mean, I think it's interesting that, he, he, like, even at the end, right, he, what his stand-in for the words lofty and long-standing long is the oak tree, not the skyscraper, right? So right, there's definitely, right, sure. like, a vision of of the world and, and its importance and what, what to take of meaning the from that's, world. of the natural right. world. Yeah. That's, that's clearly articulate. I mean, he has a strong view there on, on what's important. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just to come yeah, no, back to, to what uh, Kevin was saying too, about it's interesting. Cause I mean, you have the possibility of like global destruction brought on by the threat of a nuclear war. I mean, today, I mean, there are all kinds of doomsday warnings about climate change, right? And, and global yeah. warming, uh, you know, like what, uh, what catastrophic things could happen as the result of that. And, you know, as Kevin said, it's hard to get people to care about it, yeah. right? Or, or to get people to see it as a real thing. Um, and that image of like the, the white-tailed deer disappearing into perfect shade. You know, like we could imagine a, a species of animal disappearing, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, there are all kinds of species that are, you know, endangered by climate change. I mean, we actually have video imagery of, like, polar bears drowning, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, you know, like, th there's a very specific image I don't know if, if people are somehow avoiding it in some way, but yet there's a whole group of people who are unmoved by, by this very concrete sort of thing where the, the, the ice uh, is disappearing in the Arctic and there's like less and less land for polar bears and you see them covered in mud and things like that. It's just, you know, it's a very uh, vivid thing. 
Um, right, it's like, no, right. It's like hard to uh, imagine people being moved by by a, a nuclear war doing that when just a little bit more slowly we're watching yeah. it erode anyway. Like these yeah. things are disappearing anyway. Right, it's happening, <laughs> and, and no one's yeah. caring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I did. I, I also used to do this poem with my class. I mean, because I think it's a, an amazing poem, right? And it, I mean, just uh, put aside the subject matter; it's just sure. beautifully written, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's just you know, the artfulness of it. But, uh, yeah, it didn't really, I mean, it wasn't one that really resonated with the students. And, I mean, maybe it was in part, that, you know, um, that they just couldn't connect to, like, the the, uh, the subject or the theme. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the elevated diction, you know, um, in, in the sense where they like, you know, they didn't know the words, right? Yeah. Uh, they didn't know the, yeah. they didn't get the references. They don't know what, uh, you know, the bronze annals of the oak tree, like they don't yeah, know that, that word, yeah. right? Uh, you know, or, or, or whatever. Even how it's working there. Cause it's a, it's yeah, a metaphor. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. So I, I think it was just maybe like a little too, um, they, they just couldn't connect to it. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some barriers here to people who probably don't read a lot of poetry or read a yeah, lot these of are, the, and I, I should say too that these were freshman right. composition students they weren't like english majors or anything like that right and uh and i it, it's funny because i i think of this and i think we all probably think of this as a very accessible poem sure and, yeah <laughs> yeah like and because when we say accessible uh we mean that it, it's uh it's sort of following a um uh well, you know, the the it's written in a straightforward manner. I mean, there is some figurative language here, but it's not hard to figure out the, those figures. But, you know, it's basically, it, it has kind of a point. You know, we've been talking about the arguments that it makes. Um, You're right. You know, and, and but, you know, people who don't uh, read a lot of poetry, um, you know, again, they might not, some of these things might throw them off. It, it might not, you know, the diction might be just a little too elevated. But then there's other kinds of poems that are, you know that are not straightforward and that are deliberately obscure sure. and sure. Mm -hmm. um you know and, and they they sort of and i'm kind of going off on a tangent here but i i think it's kind of a it speaks to sort of what one of the themes of of our conversations in this podcast is you know how do you get into poetry and how uh you know how to you know does someone who's you know the son of a butcher from you know south louisiana all of a you know want to have a podcast where we talk about this poem you know and and again in, in our uh poetry circle you know which is mostly you know the so-called formalists right uh yeah which we've been having a lot of conversations about that on facebook lately um you know there's this drive to oh poetry needs to be accessible again and and you know and, and it needs to be stuff that that people understand and, and yet i mean this poem is what i would i would consider it an accessible poem but it's not something. There, there are barriers there for um, for some people, you know, uh, for a good <coughs> bit of the popular audience. I mean, does that sound right, or am I kind of going off? No, no. I, I, no, I, no, think, I, think, that, yeah. I think it's it's true. There's, I mean, even if they understand what it like literally means, there's like a decorousness to this poem, right? And to Wilbur in general, that I think. I mean, you read any Richard Wilbur poem and you think, like, this is so masterfully written. I mean, 
it, it, it's just there's this careful attention to every word you feel like, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but but there's that sense, like I mean, that it, it it's somehow like not popular, not populist. You know what I mean? Like right. it's not like speaking like this, like rough, you know, direct language, right? There's a decorousness to it that is like removed. That that seems kind of elitist to a certain kind of crowd, and mm-hmm. I think that in in part that's what gives this poem its power, right? This mm-hmm. this kind of elevated dic- diction and um, that you know the the reference to the um, it, it, in part to the, uh, the Trojan War and things like that. It gives it like the sense of like importance, right? Yeah. It sounds big. Right, but at the same time, it could also feel alienating. Like it comes back to like what we were saying earlier. Like this poem feels like it is and is not contemporary. Right, it feels like it it is and is not about our world, like the United States in hmm. at, when it was written in the in the in the twentieth century, or or even today, the United States in the twenty first century. There's something about it that just feels like somehow ancient, um, and I think part of it has to do with like the the lack of you know there's like when he says when you come as soon as you soon must to the streets of our city, you know, even that makes me think of like you know like a, a like Thebes or something like a city oh, state, yeah. yeah, right? You know what I mean? Or or um, at least it makes me think of. Um... You know, I, uh, Milton, thou shalt, thou shouldst be living at this hour. That kind of thing from the Romantics. You know that, right? Yeah. Which, which again was sort of, you know, I mean, he's beckoning to a, a, a past time. But I mean, I, I think too. I mean, you know, just Wilbur, all of his work uh, formally is in conversation with, you know, the the tradition, right? Um, yeah. Of English poetry, so there's um, there is a sort of uh, you know I think in his best language it's it's almost an, an eternal quality to the to the work you know it it um, it kind of brings it out of time a little bit because it's it's so elevated. Yeah, yeah, but you know you can see how I mean that that's going to appeal to a certain crowd, but mm-hmm. to a bunch of eighteen year olds who you know are suspicious of poetry to begin yeah. with. You know, it, it, this particular poem, at least, I, I mean, it didn't resonate with them as much. Or maybe it's just that, like, the idea of, uh, of a nuclear war isn't, or at least when I was doing this <laughs> with my class, isn't as present as it was in the 1960s, mm. right? I mean, right. suddenly it is again. <laughs> yeah, there was <laughs> that. North Korea. Yeah, well, yeah, and there was like a, a false alarm uh, just this past weekend, wasn't there, in, in Hawaii? Uh, right, yeah. right, right. And yeah, yeah, I, so maybe maybe now it would be yeah. more, it would seem more relevant, but I don't know. For whatever reason, I thought this would be like a hit, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't, I don't mean to like derail the conversation with that. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it's, I, you know, again, it's, it's sort of, I mean, I think that's one of the great themes of our conversations is like, you know, we we know what what we respond to, but what what do other people uh, respond to? Especially people who don't um, read as much poetry as, as we do. Um, 
you know, yeah, what, you I, know I, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. Luke. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask if we could maybe um, revisit an idea that Kevin had had gestured at earlier, which was just sort of about the way that um, he suggests our, our annihilation without totally talking about that directly. And and for me, and may, maybe this is a little, I can already tell that like maybe this argument is a little too bold or whatever. And you know, feel free to to call it out for for bullshit um, or or push back on it a little bit. But that 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 stanza, you know, nor shall you scare us with talk of the death of the race. How should we dream of this place without us, the sun mere fire, the leaves untroubled about us? That's the only time in the poem that he decides, uh, in the middle lines, instead of using a rhyme, he just repeats the exact same word. And he's, wow. talking, about, he's talking about us and, and the race in that moment. And he, he does it again at the end of the poem when he says, ask us, ask us. And again, it could be a little too bold, but oftentimes direct repetition like that uh, it'll cause our mind to go to the next meaning of the word of how we think of us. But with re repeated repetition, we can get to a point where we hear that same word and we basically get nothing out of it. And in a way, it, I, I do think that kind of repetition can be seen as an erasure. And, and I, I do see that the word comes up. It's the most repeated word in, in the poem by far. Us, you mean? Yes, us. Mm -hmm. and, and he repeats it twice there and then at the end. And there's another time that he uses it. Mm. I'm, but I think I think there's something I think there's something to that. I'm not sure if if I totally think of repetition as erasure, but I think in this poem it, it might be gesturing towards that. So like so what so erasure in the, in in what sense? Well, I think in the sense that it, you know it's a poem about how we make meaning, uh, and so yeah. I think we need to be paying attention to how repetition makes or unmakes meaning within language. I think he's attuned to that in this. Mm. So they're like this, this getting at the idea that when you say something again, it's like it's, it's it, you know, when it you alters the meaning, yeah, or possibly masks or races at some point, yeah. And that has to do with the entire idea of the poem of like of of there being no us, or or yeah, or or of um. Because I feel like he's making an argument about like the necessity for metaphor, right? Yeah, like, no. we're too direct. When we're too direct, it it can you know, it rockets the mind, it's too much. And, and much in the same way that repetition can can obscure meaning, I think, sometimes. Mm, okay. Or, or, I mean, also reinforce meaning. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a poem, yeah. so it, it's, it's able to do that. But I do know that linguistically, there is a thing with repetition, and the, in, the listener will start coming up with alternative meanings. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well yeah, definitely. I mean, you, uh, I mean, this, this, the minute you repeat something, um, you're, I mean, the most basic thing you could be doing is adding emphasis, for example, and even though that might not change the meaning, it definitely, um, you know, it's communicative. It's, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical uh, move, so it's, it's, uh, it's helping your argument. Yeah, there's like repetition in, um, in, in rhetoric, like a parallel mm -hmm. structure, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of what's like happening in that... Um, in that third stanza there, uh, how should I, I dream of this yeah. place without us? The sun right. mere fire, the leaves untroubled about us. Like, I mean, there's a kind of, you know, um, a rhetorical effect of, you know, of, of repetition, right? Uh, where it's, you know, it, it, it creates like an emphatic tone, you know? Definitely, definitely. And I, and I, I didn't read the last line on that stands a, a stone look on the stone's face but i and maybe yeah. that's why i'm maybe that's why i'm going to sort of erasure or 
or you know it's like that like that mirror meaning you know what i mean mm-hmm. because it's not that's not a metaphor right like we don't know what <laughs> like all you can all you can see is stone again you mm-hmm. know what i mean like what does a stone look on a stone so like it's it just seems intentionally non-descriptive mm-hmm. to get at that idea yeah a stone look on the stone's face and meaning I mean, the whole idea, uh, I, I think, of, of metaphor in this in this poem is that so much of how we think about ourselves and how we talk mm. about the world, you know, the think about in, in poetry, so much, uh, you know, is it, we, we see metaphor, right? And what do we reach for to make sense of things? Um you know, to, to compare something. To, so if we have, like, an abstract idea to make that vivid and somehow understandable more, right? Well, I mean, we reach for what's familiar to us, right? Mm-hmm. And what's familiar to us is the natural world, right? So it's kind of like he's saying that, you know, uh, going down into, I guess it's the, uh, the sixth stanza here, um, going into the seventh. What should we be without the dolphin's ark, the dove's return, these things in which we have seen ourselves and spoken, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is our way of understanding ourselves, our, of understanding experience is so reliant, this earth that we live in, right? In this world that we come from. Right. Um, and, and without it, <laughs> you know, if these things would cease to exist, there's a part of us that would cease, cease to, to exist, exist right. as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, towards the end, he says, um, again, he, he refers to nature as that glass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ask us, prophet, how we shall call our natures forth when that live tongue is all dispelled that glass obscured or broken in which we have said the rose of our love and the clean horse of our courage, right? So nature as like a mirror that we're looking into, right? And uh, it is those, you know, the rose of our love, the horse of our, cur- of our courage, those are, are, are like striking metaphors uh, there. But like, you know, the rose, it's, it's a flower, but it means so much more to us, right? Because it's been put to so much use in, in poetry yeah. as metaphor, right? Uh, you know, my love is like a red, red rose, right? It, mm-hmm. the, a rose means so much more. A horse, it's not just an animal. It's emblematic of so much, right? right? And, I mean, if these things would cease to exist, what would, what would, po- what would uh, so much of our poetry would become meaningless, you know? Right. Uh, and so much of our, our, our experience would be lost. Yeah, and, and it's like, I mean, it's uh, all we mean or wish to mean, uh, yeah. you know, to use his phrase, comes from uh, this world. And it, it's actually, uh, and, and then, of course, in the last stanza, uh, you know, he, with this annihilation, the rose becomes a worldless rose. You know, yeah, the, the rose loses mm-hmm. the world and around it as well. And I mean, I, I feel like um, the you know in those last uh, few quatrains, um, the the pitch of the of a poem and, and the the strikingness of the of the imagery and the sort of um, there's a mystery that that builds up in, in the in the end you know by the end of it. Um, yeah, 
and it you know it ends with you know the bronze annals of the oak tree close um you know which I, you can take as a um uh i mean there's all sorts of um uh literal kind of ways to interpret that you know the bronze annals you know i mean the 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 rings of the oak tree uh record you know all the years of its growth and yeah uh, all yeah, of yeah. that but but there's something in my mind there's something a bit mysterious about that as well um that it's well you know because as he says i mean there's all this meaning that we put into nature that's lost and and in my mind there's there's so much in those annals of the oak trees that that's that's still to be explored i don't know if that makes any sense but yeah no yeah, well, it, so. yeah. it's 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 a i mean I love the image, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's the last image in the poem, right? It's, it's kind of strange, but yet we get it, right? Mm -hmm. On some kind of intuitive level. Like, I, I think of, you know, just like row upon row of trees, and I picture almost like a, a you know, like a statue room or something, mm -hmm. right? This is like a, a, a history, mm -hmm. right? Um, but just the, the sort of like imposing nature... Like, he's like, will there be such a thing as lofty or long-standing? Mm -hmm. Like, because these are words that are, like, kind of, you know, mm. describing kind of abstract things. What does it mean to be lofty or long-standing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what do we immediately reach for? I mean, we might go to nature and we might think of an oak tree, right? Mm -hmm. As, like, a symbol of, of this kind of thing that's been here for so long and it's it's grown and you know it has like this kind of wisdom to it or whatever right you, you know uh, yeah yeah it's but it's like it's a kind of you know it goes beyond like a rational sort of explanation totally i mean yeah i mean i guess but you know potentially an oak tree can can live longer than a person and that it sure. almost seems like they're the keepers of the time or something right right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely right um yet they yeah. seem like they're these sort of um the past our history is still with us in this tree that's been here mm. you know yeah there's um years or more right yeah you know, that was here when my grandfather was young this tree right. was here you know yeah there's um there's a tree in uh cambridge uh common uh and there's like a plaque by it and it's it was a tree under which uh general washington gathered the troops when he took command right. of the army you know what i mean and <laughs> Um, there's, uh, you know, and I think of, uh, Auden said something about, um, you know, to an American, a tree, it's just a tree to, a, uh, um, to a Brit, you know, it's, you look at the tree and you think of the, all the wars that were fought near it, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, I saw a picture of, um, and the tree's not there anymore, which makes this even more poignant <laughs> but this tree that was out in front of my house growing up right and i saw this picture from like i oh god it was probably like the 1930s or something right and there was the tree what, or what i thought was the tree but it was like this young tree you know it was small much smaller than it was when i was a kid and was old and dying right um but like this picture from I don't, you know, like 40 years before or more, uh, there was the tree, you know, and it was like, it was almost like, I don't, I don't know, it's a strange feeling to see it there, nature, so he refers to it as that glass, right, like a mirror, right, in, um, obscured or broken, 
but he also calls it that live tongue, which I think is a little bit, that image is a little bit more obscure. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think he means, that live tongue? Yeah, I think he's referring to, you know, all the images uh, that he's brought up, you know, like the Dolphin's Ark, the Dove's Return, the things in which we have seen ourselves and spoken. He's referring to it all as like a common language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. I mean, but that's just, I mean, it's a great way of saying it. And the thing about that, that like, it belongs to us, Mm -hmm. right? Right. That live tongue, this is our language. This is the way in which we've made sense of the world, these things from nature yeah the word tongue you know meaning language to me has always been it it never it's a metaphor that for me never gets old because it's so visceral and yeah um, you know it's connected to um you know the uh the body so directly um so no yeah absolutely like i i think that you can't hear the word tongue and not i mean especially as an english speaker and not think of uh the organ before you think of language um, yeah, you know the 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 idea of language comes directly after it, but in your mind you're thinking of, you you know a tongue. <laughs> so so it's kind of like a mixed metaphor, like but a very effective I, mixed metaphor. I know. Well, it it is. It's just beautifully stated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so much here. I mean, I mean that's why he's such a great poet. Right. It's just you know he phrases it in this fresh and interesting way you know um even to come back to that that um that line that barreline mentioned earlier the sun mere fire the leaves untroubled about us a stone look on the stone's face yeah you know to just say like suddenly a stone is just a stone it's just a rock it's there's no there's no one projecting any kind of meaning onto it Mm -hmm. right yeah it's just a stone look on the stone's face yeah, I mean, and I, I love the sun, mirror, fire. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, because it's it's really, I cannot think of the sun as merely fire, and that's kind of the point, <laughs> you know? It's like, without us... Uh, but it, it, yeah. it's just like a bowl of burning gases, or whatever the hell it is, you yeah. know what I mean? But, like, it's so much to us, right? I mean, you know, it's it actually is, I mean, it's the source of life, really. Yeah. <laughs> truth <laughs> um or 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 just that you know uh though we cannot conceive of an undreamt thing we know to our cost how the dreamt cloud crumbles you know yeah dreamt undreamt an interesting dichotomy you yeah. know yeah but hell of a poet yeah, mad-eyed from stating the obvious. <laughs> right. I mean, we did, there's that there's that kind of whole classic image of the mad prophet, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's mad because it's so obvious. Everybody should be getting this, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I kind of, I mean, everybody's probably felt a little mad-eyed from stating the obvious, <laughs> you know. But that's a that's a that's a memorable line too. Yeah, there's so much. I I think that um, uh, one of the things that I love about Wilbur is his uh, the compression you get. Like you, I mean, we've already in all the lines that we've 
uh, sort of brought up here, the ones that we really love, like the sun, mirror, fire, uh, that's four words, and yet, yeah. uh, you know, it just seems to have so much power packed into those those syllables. It's four syllables, too, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that you just don't get from, from most poets, um, even the best of the non-Wilbers out there, you know? Um, and and it's it's something more than um, there's something more than meter going on. I think meter helps him get to a lot of those places. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, you know because I know that the the few happy accidents that I've had you know in writing poetry, you know, where like I'll have a few words that seem to do a lot more than you would think a few words can do. It comes from getting it into the meter and like you know rewriting things for compression's sake, you know, to say it in a mm. shorter span of lines. Um, and I think it's something that he learned from the French, uh, from translation, or just translation in general, really. Um, unfortunately, I don't have much to back that up with. It's just sort of a sense that I've had for a long time. <laughs> you know, that he, uh, you know, like, because, um, you know, when you read, um, uh, I, I can't read much French without uh, a dictionary, but... Um, right. You know, it, it's just, it, there's something, uh, I, I think that he learned a lot from those poets by uh, by translation. I'm sure he did. Uh, I'm sure he did. And just the the way, too, like these sentences, you know, the very complex sentences. I mean, it's one thing, you know, you, you can't really write like this unless you're, you know, you know grammar. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Uh, which again maybe speaks to the importance of teaching grammar. I mean, if you're if you're going to be a, a, a poet, like I, I think it's like this, um, you know, romantic notion that like, oh, I, I don't need to follow the rules of grammar and everything. <laughs> but like someone like Richard Wilbur is a great example. It's like, you know, to be able to construct these long sentences and jammed over several lines and even multiple stanzas mm -hmm. with all kinds of, you know. Uh, you know, just complexity to them and, and then have it still make sense and having, you know, the, the reader still able to follow the sentence. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I'm not that maybe it's a sign that the, the semester is starting again. The students are on my mind again. <laughs> but like a lot of times uh, a common piece of advice I give to students uh, when, when writing uh, freshman you know, beginning writers really are, you know, I'm like, make these sentences shorter because the longer the sentence goes on, the more likely it is that you're going to take it off track. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. But like, look at this, um, the first sentence in the poem, it goes, it, it's, you know, it's eight lines long. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you know, not to, um, this is not a knock on, on that at all. I, I almost mentioned though that as one of the things that, that might be just what some of your students are responding to as a less contemporary way of speaking, right? It lets, sure. lets even the rhymes and the word choice. I don't even think the word choice is that. There's a couple things mm -hmm. here and there mm -hmm. maybe they'd have to look up. But I right. think it's I think it's the choices that get <laughs> made by looping, you know, by having a two stanza, a sentence yeah. that stretches over two stanzas yeah. in, in such an artful way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the um, complexity of the sentences. Um, I think that's probably one of the, the blockers for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, th there's also the idea of like, and every torrent, uh, every torrent burn. You know what I mean? The, mm -hmm. Like, you know, instead of saying river, 
right. <laughs> you know what totally. I mean? Yeah. Or yes. yeah, there, there are stuff. There is stuff like that. But um, yeah, no, I I think really it is it is the complexity of the sentences too. Yeah, uh, and, which and, is something that's so admirable about this poem for me. But oh yeah, absolutely. You no, know, the syntax. And I, I think it's again. It, it's always. Um, Probably I, I didn't scan this poem very thoroughly, but it, he's doing something. I, I always thought this was all just iambic pentameter, but it's not. I mean, the the many of the lines are tetrameter, um, and that's something that I, I, you know, we don't really have to get into that, but more so, yeah. or in addition to the meter and the rhyme, there is syntax and how that is negotiated with all these other elements. Um, yeah, and it's something yeah. that. Uh, you know, you have to have a mastery over it, but I also think that you know it's it's um, part of that mastery is when you're in the process of writing the poem, seeing where it, it wants to go as well. Yeah, you know, having giving up control here and there, um, which we to probably the form with the rhymes and everything. Yeah, yep. yeah, which which we don't see because all we see is the final draft here. But uh, I'm, yeah, I mm. feel sure that you know one of the re- reasons Wilbur uses. Uh, a lot of these uh, old tools is so that he can kind of dig up things that he's, you know, uh, you know, he can be surprised by things he didn't know he knew, uh, to quote his mentor, Robert Frost, you know. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, um, so, you know, one of the other things we wanted to talk about tonight is uh, another uh, shorter Wilbur poem called uh, To the Student Strikers. Um, And Mr. Bauerlein, uh, you have that ready to read? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as we were kind of, um, briefly discussing before, I just think this makes an, a nice cap, cap to, um, advice to a prophet because it, it shows how Wilbur is, is continuing to sort of work out this idea of public discourse and, you know, sort of the way that he thinks you could convince people, um, of your position. So here's a, uh, for the student strikers, go talk with those who are rumored to be unlike you and whom it is said you are so unlike. Stand on the stoops of their houses and tell them why you are out on strike. It is not yet time for the rock, the bullet, the blunt slogan that fuddles the mind toward force. Let the new sound in our streets be the patient sound of your discourse. Doors will be shut in your faces, I do not doubt. It here or there may be, there will start much as the lights blink on in a block at evening changes apart. They are your houses. The people are not unlike you. Talk with them, then, and let it be done, even for the gray wife of your nightmare sheriff and the guardman's son. Yeah, that's beautiful poem. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, you know, the, the connection between them. They're both poems about, like, ways, about discourse, mm-hmm. about uh, talking to people, um, uh, strategies, uh, rhetorical strategies. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's obviously a, a, a theme. But I think it's interesting that in both poems, he sort of recognizes limitations, right? Whereas, yeah. In, yeah. in advice to a prophet, he's sort of saying like, "We can't, we can't do this too directly. We need, we need metaphor to help us understand." And um, in this one, he sort of seems to say like, "Look, he, I'm not saying <laughs> talk to the talk to the nightmare sheriff and talk to the to the guardsman. I'm saying." There are people connected to them that aren't yeah. as that aren't your opposition, and you right. need to see them that way if you want to be successful. Maybe, but that's what yeah. you're suggesting to me. 
And when they uh, when he submitted that poem, they threw it in the trash. Although so, I was just reading an interview today with um, with A.M. Juster, and he said his take on it was that they pulled it out of the trash after some thought. Oh. I believe the the, the oh the, somebody or, threw I it think, in the trash. Yeah, I think the, but I think out. somebody pulled it out, and I think they wound up publishing it. But there was definitely debate over it, and it was wow. not originally received uh, as as a positive necessarily. But I think they thought through it. This was the New Yorker. No, it no. was a it was a student. I think it was was it Amherst. Oh, no, Wesley was, was student. Wesleyan. Was it Wesleyan? Wesleyan thank you, Wesleyan. Where he taught. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. and he, he had written it for for their for the Strikers magazine that they oh, they right. were going to publish. Yeah, he, and they, um, they were yeah. going. They were protesting the Vietnam War, right? Right, right. Which there's a note yeah. at the end of the book. Yeah, you can't help but uh, you know blame that initial reaction, uh, you know, just because it, it must have seemed like you know this old, uh, you know, what the hell is this old guy now, you know, about what we're trying to do or whatever, and it's, <laughs> it, it must seem like something that, uh, you know, it's like, oh, okay, whatever, dude, like you, you know, you're not out on the streets and you're not really, you know, you seem kind of removed from it uh, at first glance, you know what I mean? Yeah, or, or or to just say like. You think that we should like talk to these people, right? You know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Um, the note that he includes at the end of the uh, the book, uh, and it's from um, the the mind reader. Said I'm I'm looking at his collected poem, mm -hmm. but I think the collection is the the uh, the mind reader mm -hmm. from 1976. The poems from um, he dates it 1970, written for the Wesleyan Strike News. Um, but the note he includes at the end was. This was written one afternoon at the request of the Wesleyan students during a, quote, strike against U.S. military action mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia. The poem supports a student-proposed canvassing program under which the students were to go from door to door in the city of Middletown discussing their views with the citizens. As the poem did not flatter the students in a manner to which they were accustomed, it was at first thrown into the wastebasket at the offices of the Strike News, but later retrieved in public. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, but they, they did they did publish it, but whoever got it at first was like, Psh. Right. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. they didn't give them the moral high ground, I guess. They, they said that it's actually something that you could learn from these people. Yeah. Yeah, but it also sounds like like some of the students were had already organized this thing and were all about canvassing with their neighbors and love and probably were like right in keeping with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That does sound, that sounds like what it what it's some all of the, about. Some yeah. of them got it already. Some of them maybe yeah. not. There. Yeah, that's always the convincing. Case. When Richard Wilbur died, I guess when was it? Was that October when he died? October of this year that or last right year? To me. Yeah, yeah, I, or October, I think it was. It got a lot of attention, like especially in in, in the poetry world. Um, but you know, it it's it's kind of strange. Like for me, Richard Wolber was like a, a a national treasure, you know. Um, yet so many people have no idea who he is. <laughs> And uh, even in the poetry world, like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like he gets the same kind of, uh, the, the, the kind of acclaim that he deserves. Right. Um, yeah. Or that he, or he, you know, uh, so, I mean, this should be, this should, it, it, 
Richard Wolper was like our Robert Frost, you yeah. know? He was like the successor, yeah. I, I feel. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Um, well, you know, and I'm I'm just looking online, and John John Ashbery died uh, in September of last year. So yeah. like they were really and mm. and it's I've those are the two poets Wilbur and Ashbery that that I seem to recall uh, very often. Each of them being referred to as the greatest living poet while they were yeah around. you yeah. know obviously the Westchester crowd uh, would say that about um, Wilbur and then um, you know a lot of bloggers who were more into. Uh, whatever you want to call the sort of co contemporary elliptical stuff that's going on. Um, and I, I know I'm sounding a little, I'm more in tune with the formless world, but yeah. you know, there's a lot yeah, well, of, I mean, yeah. Uh, we talked to, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Oh, no, and, and like, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there's a lot that, that Ashbery did that I absolutely love. And, and, and sure. a lot of the people who are influenced by him that, that I find very interesting. But, um, uh, I always thought that was really interesting is like that you would never have there would never be any kind of agreement there for any for those two sides you know if that's how strongly you feel you know that uh um it, it seemed that that they really did kind of divide the, the these two poles of of what was going on in american poetry not but there aren't uh, you know i i'm always I always say that you, you can't, there is no, you know, quote-unquote, American poetry. There's just too much going on. Yeah, no, there's just, there's, there's just <laughs> you know. too much going on. And But, like, I feel like even when Frost died, I mean, obviously none of us were around. No. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, you, you look back and you feel like there was this consensus that he was, like, this great, important poet. But I'm sure yeah. a lot of people... Like they do with Richard Wilbur, sneered at Frost with condescension. Oh, you know yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? He was. He he wasn't that kind of poet. Like, you know. So there's the there's the poet like T. S. Eliot, who I think actually did have a, 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 a you know a, a wider general readership than maybe some people today would. Uh, yeah, would admit, but there was somebody like Eliot who was like a poet that was, you know, appealed to academics more, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a a poet like Frost who, who sure appealed to academics, but was more of like a people's poet. Yeah. Um, and I I think I'd like to think Richard Wilbur was a people's poet. He was a people's poet even if the people didn't know it. <laughs> right and i mean we just yeah you know um but in you know we talked earlier about how like this poem this particular poem at least i think for the student strikers is is made would be i would think that would connect with my freshman uh composition students but this particular poem advice to a prophet they had a hard time connecting to it um but even you know, even if they, you know, th these this group of young people didn't connect to Richard Wilbur, I think Richard Wilbur is somebody, as 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 Kevin said, who is accessible, but not mm -hmm. simplistic like Robert yeah. Frost, right? Yeah. So he's the he's the he's the right kind of poet, I think, to be a national treasure. Yeah. Like, what? Why, why didn't Richard Wilbur ever read at an inauguration of a president? You know? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I hasten to add, though, that Frost was deceptively simple. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, and, uh, the, yeah, sure. no, I, I totally agree. But there, but there is I, like this academic elevated tone that, that Wilbur takes on that Frost never touched. That, that Frost yeah. is not, yeah, Frost yeah. has that New England, uh, like, kind of, like, quaint folksy kind of thing, yeah, and Wilbur yeah. does seem, you're right, you're right. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, but as far as, like, you know, he's more accessible than... Ashbury. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yes. it's funny there too. It's like you know, because like Ashbury will take these. Uh, you know, he loves he loves using uh, language that you know you he would hear on the street. You know, I mean, he definitely yeah. jumps off from yeah, the populist sure. point of you know view. And I think that that it, you know that 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 is an entry of um, that is a point of entry for some people. I think who who may not read a lot of poetry for him because I know that like for me when I um, when I started reading poetry. Uh, when I was like 18, uh, well, before that, um, you know, when I was still in high school and uh, I was into rock music and then I, a lot of the musicians I liked were, you know, read Ginsberg and the Beats, so I read them and like, I had no idea what I was reading, but it was kind of cool and like, I could kind of see what he was talking about and yeah. the stuff that I didn't understand was kind of gnarly, dude. Yeah, but with somebody like Ashbury, like the... The language might may be more accessible, yeah. right? But like the sense, yeah. To the degree that some of his poems even have, right, like, make like a traditional kind of sense, right? Right, is not as accessible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's uh, yeah, it's I I find it very interesting to think about the two. Those, yeah, what yeah. what I call the two poles of the poetry world, but I mean, but there only... are, there are so many more than two poles. Exactly, right? it's so fragmented now. Yeah, right. There 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 isn't just two different camps like the raw and the cooked or whatever. Right. There's you know there's tons of different areas. So there, I, I think that's just a, a true of our culture in general, just so fragmented. Right. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you for tuning in once again to Work Cited, a podcast about poems. For more information, be sure to visit our website at workscitedpodcast.com. And now, here once again, is Philadelphia's own The Late